What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Unscripted and Unapologetic on this, uh, see, what is it, February 8th, Tuesday, February 8th. Um, today, I wanted to really just spend a few minutes talking about, in my mind, and what I believe in a lot of people's minds that are part of the resistance, and um, if you want to call it that, which is what I'm calling it um, kind of the pushback, uh, and that is the ch the our posterity. Now I don't have kids, but um, that doesn't mean that it's not important uh, to me. So I outlined something that I kind of want to run through. Um, one of the nice things about working overnight on a job where they have zero expectations of you, at least for now, is that you can work on some stuff. The bad part is, is that uh, 40 years old, I don't have the energy that I used to. So um, what I pump out while I'm working on the overnight is um, not uh, always as eloquent as I would like it to be, but it is what it is for now. And counting down um, soon, no later than the first week in March, unless something drastic changes, I'm taking the leap and hoping that the net appears. I'm leaving Austin, Texas, and I'm headed for Florida, job or no job, because the walls are closing in on me here. And I know that there's a lot of people who are in similar circumstances. Um, so I wanted to, let me see if I can find it, um, really talk about uh, that's a post that I made in the newsletter called In Defense of Our Young, um, an in introduction to our future. And this was for the unscripted newsletter that I'm starting to. And all this stuff is really new to me. I'm not a pro. Um, I spent the last 16 years before I got laid off um, working with youth and programs and dedicating 80 hours a week to that. I've, I've always been a writer, wanted to be a writer. It's what I majored in in college, um, writing and drama and things like that, and had teaching as a fallback. Um, but as someone who was a vaccine injured uh, youngin and suffered um, a lot, um, and it took me a while to even be able to say that out loud, I realized along the way that working with youth um, and making sure that I was in a position where I could hire the staff, I could monitor, I could build a team that was ethical and moral and all of that to the best of my ability um, and protect those youth in the way that um, I wasn't protected uh, at a certain point in my young life at around 10 years old, almost 10 years old. So. Um, the, the, the post goes like this. I, I make it clear at first, I, I don't have children and I admire those beyond anything I can put into words um, who have children, who are striving to raise children uh, in this time. Um, I think it's easy to forget that no matter what time in history or a person's belief system, life can be hard. Uh, and I imagine raising children uh, is hard, no matter what, by all available evidence, it seems like an extraordinary task. Um, and when I say that, uh, of course, you know, my nieces and nephews, and I know people who have kids. And then, of course, uh, now that um, I'm an adult, get to talk to my parents and uh, discuss 
just how challenging we all were. Um, and, and then a lot, most parents that I talk to say that, you know, the task never ends. You know, you feel a sense of obligation uh, to the human you created, to your, to your kid, even when they're an adult to the day you die. Um, so while I don't have children of my own, obviously I had a childhood. Um, I was a child. And I look back at the 90s, and those of you who have listened to anything that I've posted know that I harp a lot on the 90s. I look back at the 90s now, and um, I am grateful, very great, ineffably grateful that I came of age in that decade. Like I said, as I've discussed in many other posts and will discuss further in future posts, um, However, despite my fondness of that decade and of my adolescence, my youth, like so many others, was marked by some serious challenges um, that does not make me unique. Uh, and like so many victims of childhood abuse, uh, it took me a long, long time to arrive at a point where I could um, even picture the words in my mind Never mind, um, write them down. Never mind, talk about them. Um, it's kind of hard to explain. The only, only people who could really understand what I mean by that are people who have been through something ser uh, similar uh, or any traumatic experience. Um, it's just, it's tough to explain. So um, I, I kept the secret from my family. In fact, to be honest, I, I still keep the secret. To this very day, uh, only two members of my family have a very vague idea of what happened. Um, I just don't see what good it would necessarily do to tell them, and they're never going to listen to this or watch any of this. Um, so, and that much I can guarantee you. Um, and if they do, then they, then they do. Um, because the next part, should clear up something. Um, in, the, in the post, I say, before I go any further, and I mean this, y'all, um, I wanna be clear that my parents were and are heroic. Um, I, I can't imagine more loving parents um, and they were doing what they felt was in my best interest. You know, they, I, I don't know, they say, you, you know, you pick your parents, you pick, you know, like on a subconscious level, I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's just the fatigue talking. Forget how the saying goes, but I, all I know is that I really, and I mean this. Um, when I break it all down, and I've had thirty years to process all this, so believe me, there's been time. And then the layoff allowed me some time. I can't imagine um, having lucked out with two more remarkable parents that not only saved my life, but um, are my friends and mentors to this day. Um, anyway, so um, they were doing what they felt was in my best interest because here's what happened. I was born in 1981, November 1981, um, and I was uh, injured by what was then a routine vaccination. At the time in the 1980s, I believe it was the DTP, DT. P um, vaccine, which was yanked off the market when lawsuits began to soar. And of course, it paved the way for the US National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act 
1986, which, um, you know, does nothing to help uh, kids. Uh, it sets up a trust fund where you can maybe get compensated, but really at the crux of it, when you get, you know, cut through the fat, get to the bone, get down to the brass tacks, what it truly does in essence, not in essence, what it does is it sim quite simply protects the pharmaceutical companies from any liability whatsoever. So, you know, you can sue over the op opioid crisis, you can sue and hold them accountable over any number of things, but vaccinations, no dice. And um, so they set up the, what, what I call the vaccine court. It's, it's more like a, a, you, an ar arbitration kind of thing um, anyway without getting into too many details, because that'll be for another post, uh, my development was arrested. It, it halted that within 24 hours of getting that vaccination. And I went from being what I'm told, because of course I don't remember, it's toddler. I went from being an extraordinarily precocious toddler that was far exceeding um, developmental milestones to um, a lethargic, a sick toddler, and then ultimately to a very troubled, emotionally disturbed child with autistic-like features. And um, when those waned, serious behavioral problems, I was out of control. Uh, in my parents' quest to get me help, I was sent to an inpatient facility at good old Yale New Haven Hospital. And I was sent there twice for two 60-day stints. Um, the first time, I think I was six, so it was in the 80s. And then the second time was in 1990. And it was from July 28th to September 28th. Um, so I believe I, I would be nine, would have been nine. Um, now, I don't uh, remember the first stint, but I very vividly, unfortunately, no matter how hard I tried not to remember, I remember the second stint. Um, the second stay, I was, like I said, I was nearly 10 years old and I, and I remember the terror and the abuse in the deep night. Uh, it's just not something you forget. I don't know. Returning home came unfortunately with the even mix of elation over the moon um, and excitement to see my little brother. There's the smell of my room, the sound of the, the bullfrogs in the pond and the peepers, the tree frogs and the honeysuckles in the neighborhood, just the sounds of comfort. Uh, but at the same time, one of my sisters, you see, um, really enjoyed terrorizing me. And I'm not just talking about sibling rivalry. Um, she had her own issues. She's not an evil person. She's um, a wonderful adult. I love her with all my heart, but um, we both had our issues. And for whatever reason that I can't figure out, um, she wasn't just, it wasn't just a matter of siblings will be siblings and pick on you. She terrorized me. Um, and my parents saw that and oftentimes uh, were desperate to find ways to stop it. And they just, couldn't um uh but i had my little brother and so i was grateful for that and of course i had my two wonderful loving parents there are other siblings in the picture um but that's also a complicated matter for another time uh, ultimately my sister's treatment would 
serve to cement the damage done by my attackers. And I'm, I wrote a story about it and I'm considering posting it. I really, I really have to think about that. That's a big one. So ultimately, um, like I said, though, um, some of the things you'd have to read the story to understand and, um, but, but without knowing it, um, she, some of the, the, the just damage that was done, she cemented by the way she was treating me certain things that she did with that that were similar because they didn't just, they didn't just sexually abuse. Um, they also did things, uh, these two night staff, one for my roommate, one for me, did things like lock me in the bathroom and terrorize me, telling me there were, you know, little men in the pipes. And um, I know it sounds absurd, but I was a troubled kid. And so when I would return home and my sister would do things to me like that, um, it just cemented those. It took, it really led to phobias that took me a long time to get over and that somewhere inside me, I still live with today, I'm sure. Um, now, I know my sister was not aware of um, what I was going through. Of course, how could she be? She, there's no way she could have known this. And if she did, I know that despite her actions towards me, she would have been utterly horrified. You see, my sister was kind of one of those people that would have been like, you know, uh, only I get to treat him that way. Um, not, you know, that way, but like, only I get to pick on him, only I get to uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, I will give her credit when there were certain occasions where I needed it. Uh, my sister, little but mighty, stepped up to protect me. Um, and of course, in those moments, I always hoped it would stay that way. Unfortunately, never did. But um, that would go to show you that she loved me at heart, that uh, we were both just dealing with our own demons. And unfortunately, her outlet was me, which uh, was not fun. But anyway, um, in 1995, my parents sent me to a treatment center called the Grove School. The Grove School saved my life. Um, after all these uh, meds that they suggested, um, my mom was always looking for cutting edge stuff um, from Dr. Padula's vision therapy, which um, helped reverse some of the damage done by the vaccination injury that, that caused vision issues. And I forget the name of the, I'm gonna have hope, hopefully a guest on, that was my former uh, pre, uh, like first grade teacher, Linda DeFrancesco, who helped navigate a lot of this stuff. But a lot of the, the injury came from a vision issue that was brain damage and even, um, the psychiatrist, Dr. Um, Preston Wiles, uh, testified at, evidently, um, I don't, you know, I wasn't there, I was young, testified at the arbitration or whatever you want to call it, that it's, um, you know, brain damage. He's like, he was trying to explain to them, you're not understanding that it, it's brain damage. Uh, but I digress. Um, the Grove School, my parents realized that it, um, they realized long ago, but really when they found this program, it was clear to them that it would be people that would solve the problem um, above and beyond anything else in a collaborative effort, people. 
So there was this was treatment center. And after graduating college, it was a, a treatment center where you lived there and the staff lived there too. And it was the least restrictive environment where you were allowed to make mistakes with oversight and grow and learn. Um, there, are no other, there is no other treatment facility, treatment program like it on the planet. The Grove School is the only one of its kind. And the Chorneys are like, as far as the celestial furniture is concerned, um, there's like, I'm not gonna give the rankings, but they're up there. They saved my life. Um, they saved my life. Uh, so I went to work there after I graduated college. Um, I went to work at Grove as a house parent. And I did that because A, it was an easy job, but I didn't really know at the time because I had buried the traumatic experience in such a, in a psychological hole so deep that it's a marvel I was able to unearth it. But I, I was already taking a stand in, in defense of the young. I took my job very, very seriously. Um, uh, you know, to pay back the Chorneys, I took it seriously because one night I was doing, you know, checks before I went to my little room, final checks on the, on the boys and in the bedroom right before my little apartment, because you live in the house with them. There's two staff, rotating days and rotating weekends. And I remember looking at one of the boys um, sleeping and I just thought to myself, holy shit, like I'm responsible for these lives. Like this is a big deal. Um, not that I wasn't taking it seriously before then, but uh, about five weeks in, I had that epiphanal moment. If that's not a word, I've just decided that it is epiphanal. It's not, but I like it, so we'll go with it. And uh, I, I realized what um, my mission kind of was, what I wanted to be a part of. Um, so um, I wanted to take a stand in defense of the young because, you know, nobody ever did that for me at this one place. Um, every other aspect of my life, like I said, my parents were heroic. They protected me sometimes too much, but um, there's no way they could have protected me while I was at this facility, Winchester One at Yale Naven Hospital. That was the um, responsibility of the facility. And there were unbelievably gifted and wonderful staff there. But if you have just one that's abusing, that's all that it takes. And um, so that's what I'll, what I'll say on that. Um, the only person I had during those really dark days was my roommate. So anyway, fast forward all the way to October 9th, 2020, when I got laid off from my job as direct care manager at a treatment center here in Austin, a drug treatment, drug addiction center. Working there, it was for the Phoenix Academy, I'll just say. Um, was the highlight of my career, a very special place. And I harbor no resentments whatsoever that I got laid off. Um, it just break, broke, breaks and broke, broke my heart and, and breaks it still when I continue to think about it. Although I know that um, I do believe I'm a religious person. I do believe that God kind of paved the way for me uh because i was really getting ready to want to be part of something different i just wasn't sure what that was and i was having a hard time of letting go of the bonds that come with uh working 
in that environment, um, not just the bonds with the kids, but with, with the team too, um, and working as part of a collaborative team to get things done. Um, the past few years uh, at Phoenix, we really had things humming and, and it felt really good. And then the pandemic came and I knew from the beginning in March that um, the census, that is the, the population would drop, it would impact things. And frankly, I was surprised on the morning of October 9th that it took that long for me to get laid off in the first place. Um, so as I said, um, it was painful, but also it gave me a break and a chance to really look at myself and my demons as well as our situation. The reality is, is if I hadn't gotten laid off and taken 15 months off to really work on myself, I wouldn't be able to speak openly about this now. I won't run through all of the different things I did to be able to get to this point, but it took an extraordinary uh, effort. Um, anyway, so um, I realized that if I was going to help protect the young in our society, I was gonna to have to get much more involved um, and involved from outside the confines of a treatment center or program, involved uh, in a, a much broader context. Um, so I began to research. And what I discovered through research and collaboration with people like um, independent researcher, Allison McDowell, who I just had on, um, um, and others is that um, our youth face a myriad of um, dangers. And, you know, it's not just the tyranny that we're headed into, that is a big part of it. Um, and the loss of what it means to be organic and living in this natural world to go out onto the playground and scrape your knees to have real human experiences, all of those things are, are being taken from us. It reminds me, people used to tease me. I loved and still love to this day. I mean, I own it on Amazon, the never ending story and the nothing taking over. Um, the nothing is taking over and it's ruining. If you think about it, that, 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 that idea was ahead of its time. It's ruining everything that it means to be human and certainly everything it means to be a child with a wild imagination. But anyway, um, in addition to that, we discovered that, um, or I discovered that technology, the technology of the future combined with a strong, overwhelming, unrelenting, and not surprising desire by the state to intervene in our lives poses the gravest danger to our young, to us too, but we're talking about the young right now. Um, it's possible that despite the way these new technologies are being pitched, the reality behind what the technology is, uh, is for, um, does not in any way, does, does not in any way really comport with how they'll be used. That is to say that uh, they'll pitch it as, um, you know, uh, decentralized, autonomous, uh, uh, selves, you know, your sovereign, um, there's a lot of kind of Orwellian doublespeak there. And this is stuff, this is where people tend to hop off the boat because they don't want to hear it. Um, but 
the facts are there. And the reality is I'm not saying that the technology couldn't ever be used for good. What I'm saying is that it's not sort of in the wrong hands right now. It's completely in the wrong hands right now. Um, we're just given these things and uh, you know, maybe you have a friend who's into it. Like, you know, I have a friend of a friend who was really into wise token or something and, and you want to trust these people. Um, and it's not that they're not trustworthy. It's that they're the entire shift that we're going through. Everyone has heard by now the great reset and all that stuff has everything to do with this digital autonomous organizations, all the e-governments, all of that stuff. Um, is is really posing a danger uh, you got gamification uh, and augmented reality uh, the metaverse these things sound and really look neat and could certainly benefit those with limitations um, but what about the potential for exploitation what about the potential for uh, the a type of abuse we haven't even seen before um, what about, I mean, there's just so much intrusion, violation, and exploitation that, that, that can happen. We can really delve into that in another time. But the, the horrifying reality of child trafficking by the elite is already something that people I know don't want to hear about. I don't even want to hear about it. But what if it's true? Um, based on my research, unfortunately, folks, it seems beyond debate. I can't necessarily, I can't at all tell you, you know, this person is, is for sure involved versus this. But what I can tell you is that um, it is uh, part of a cultish culture that does exist. That doesn't mean that everybody that acts in Hollywood does horrible things to kids. What it means is that it, it's um, prevalent in those arenas. Um, and I know that as like, my mom once said, it's hard to believe people could be that evil. And it's hard to believe because when you're an, a wonderful person, you don't think in those terms, uh, but they do. They, they don't think like us. They don't think they're on the same level as, uh, I, I don't know um, if it's psychopathy. I don't, it's, all I know is that it's there and it's happening and it's, um, and they're getting away with it um, largely. Um, like I said, based on my research, it seems uh, beyond debate, but we can table that and we'll table that for another time. And we'll explore this and the big picture more deeply in, in subsequent posts and podcasts. But for now, I think it's sufficient to say that it's our young that they're after. All right. Um, now, when I say they, who are they? When I refer to they, I'm referencing so many different people, people whose names you know and people whose names you don't. Um, the edifice of power above us, the structure, powers that be. Um, let's just say to make things easier that I'm referencing the main players and power brokers um, like some of the big names, Klaus Schwab, Michael Bloomberg, George Soros, Bill Gates, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, Ghislaine, I can never pronounce her name, Maxwell, and countless, countless others. Um, but the buck doesn't stop there. Um, all of those people whose names you know, the, the, the puppets, are really just kind of, uh, look at them like administrators for the um, 
for the transition for the the change that's coming for the uh, they don't want families running like their own um, insulated economic uh, learning unit they want the state to be involved in that um, and there's too many names to list but then there's the entity and the force and the predator energy satan if you're religious uh, whatever it is behind them um, that elevates because we all have the duality in us right the, the capability for the most good or the most evil and it's hard to accept uh, but it's true well these people are being compelled somehow some way to um, have their um, the most undesirable human traits elevated predation exploitation um, abuse uh, power, dom domination, full spectrum domination, all of those things. Um, so anyway, in my first discussion, um, uh, well, let me back up a, real quick. Um, the, uh, like I said, these faces, uh, these are the faces of the establishment. And if you're seeing these faces, they're the faces that the establishment is okay with you seeing and discussing because they have to give us something as a, as a steam valve to let off the pre pressure. It's just like, you know, giving a, oh, we're having elections, you have a choice um, type, of, type of thing. So I think it's important to know that. So that's door number one, what's behind door number two. Um, in my first discussion with Allison McDowell, almost almost a year ago, uh, maybe a year ago, Allison said something that really resonated with me. And I realized almost immediately, but certainly within a couple of days as it kind of, you know, just percolated in my mind that it had been my goal all along and and had now it's the hill that I plan to die on if necessary. Um, and to paraphrase, what she stated was that it was her obligation to stand between this machine, this um, um, digital takeover of the natural world and our young, um, to stand between this thing which is committed to hijacking the minds of our young um, and, and their impressionable, vulnerable souls. So to, to, to put herself as best as she can between this thing and our posterity, um, regardless of whether she succeeds or fails. And um, that's what I wanna be a part of too. And um, so in defense of our young, I, I think that that's, that's of paramount importance. Um, like I said, I plan to do the same. I'll strive to educate youth um, on what's really happening right before their eyes. Um, I will strive to empower them. Uh, I will help any parent or parents who can't take the risks that I can take because they have to provide for their families. And um, people like that are stuck. I get it. Um, my sister, my brothers, that you know what I mean? They, they, may feel certain ways, but they can't, what are they supposed to do? You know, I remember explaining all of this to my sister as much as I could in um, March, last March. 
and she you know stood up after the kids were getting home and her time was up and um she said you know if you're right tell me pray tell what what shall i do next sell the house and leave quit my job and and that's a good point like i do expect there's going to be sacrifice but it's like it's it's who should be on the front lines doing the sacrificing first um people like me uh brings me no i'm not trying to be a martyr believe me um there is i sort of shit down both my legs when i say that uh yeah i think we're good i think we're good but um it's true uh do i not have an obligation to um at least be on the front lines it's just me i'm not in a relationship right now and i have no children so why shouldn't i be a loud loud voice as loud as i can be in defense of our young in defense of because that's really what it all comes down to being a voice for people yeah but it's about the youth the ones that are coming into adulthood now all the way down to the one being born right this second and birth rates are dropping like you wouldn't believe so that's a topic for another time um as well uh, but i want to i want to be and i've told my friends with kids this um i've told my brother this i've 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 reiterated it time and again because it's true um i'll be i'll do my best to be one of many who will help and sacrifice and again not because i'm special or a martyr but because a it's something that in my darkest hour nobody did for me but more importantly there's no there's no greater obligation than protecting our posterity there just isn't you know i think our two greatest obligations are are to protect our youth and the natural world because they are coming after both um it's about one of the human traits is is a, is dominance and control and with the tech that they have they want to control everything i mean we're talking about <laughs> you, you know some of the stuff that i can get into in subsequent podcasts you know that the tech is just mind blowing now like alison says who knows that they'll be able to make it all work there's a lot of nuts and bolts there's a lot of moving parts but the where they want to be is very very clear and they want us confined to smart cities they want us pro having um having interoperable systems within our bodies um they want us interacting with an augmented reality um and then we will earn tokens uh or um skills badges or you know be able to do things based on our dashboard and our score that's not that may sound ridiculous to you but that's what they're planning on do, doing you know um forget the guy's first name i want to say it's michael or russell crow but at uh, arizona state university talks about gamification um uh, and they they really they get into this i can provide all kinds of stuff um slide shows from allison's uh channel really lays it out there but in the world economic forum operation moonshot out of japan 
which uh, wants us um, by 2050 to not even be uh, using our physical bodies, to be living in a virtual world, just using our, our mind. Um, they're already doing that through gamification, through digital twinning. Um, Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro actually talked about this. Uh, there was a clip um, and I, I just couldn't believe it. And that's why I, when I heard them talking about it, the metaverse and all that, I emailed Allison. I was like, oh, we have to do, we have to do an interview because you know this stuff that you were talking about long ago is now birthing into the mainstream. Like it's just nothing. Well, it's not just nothing. It's in fact really uh, huge and worth talking about um, and worth in incorporating into the mission uh, to defend our young. Because as I said, there is no mission as necessary and moral as standing in, in defense of our, of our young. Um, so I don't really have a ton else uh, other than that uh, today. Um, there's certainly always plenty of um, news to um, talk about, uh, if you wanna call it news. I, when I discuss news, I'll really be trying to discuss stuff that um, you're not gonna hear anywhere else. Um, and provide resources that um, that may help people understand. Um, and I understand the inclination to recoil from all this to to throw shade at me. For you know, a lot of people are like, you know, there's a, a giant billboard as I head south here. I'm in Austin, Texas right now. I, I go to work at night. Um, I'm, fly, I'm going down 35, and uh, on the upper deck. Uh, going southbound on the left-hand side is a billboard that says, um, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but I'll get it pretty close, uh, that says, uh, crypto is the silent revolution right under your nose. That should be your first red flag that, no, it ain't, okay? Because this government, any powerful government, this is um, our government, and the, the, the really the intranational organizations like the World Economic Forum and so forth are the most powerful entities known in, in the history of our species as far as we know. You really think that they're gonna like let that stand if it was really a revolution? No, it's false choice. If anybody's ever seen the Matrix uh, trilogy, yes, I'm referencing Matrix because uh, there's a lot of validity to it and that's a whole story for another time. But um, he, he goes to the source, to the creator of the matrix. And long story short is what he explains to him is that the, the mechanism of control is offering people choice. Even if it's not a real choice, all that you need is for them to think it's a real choice and they feel free. David Icke always says that um, the the prison that you, like the dictatorship that you can see and feel um, has a finite life, right? Uh, because eventually people will, will get tired of it. In a letter that Algis Huxley wrote to um, Samuel Blair, uh, George Orwell, I think 
it was Huxley to Orwell because Huxley was his French teacher. Um, he congratulates him on the book. I can see if I can, if I remember, if I'm not too tired, link the letter in there. But if I'm remembering correctly, uh, he congratulates him on, on the book, uh, 1984. And he says, but um, I really see a scenario unfolding that's much more akin to uh, my book, Brave New World. Um, and he lays out the very simple case why and I'll summarize it here before we conclude. The reason is because people will, you know, continue on living in a jail if they don't recognize it to be a prison. If, if they think that they're free. What's that quote? I forget the person's name, so I'm sorry, but um, it goes something like there are none more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe that they are free. So we have a window of opportunity here. We really do. Um, we have um, some stormy weather ahead of us, but I actually, despite all of, all of this and how dystopian it seems and is um, and how scary it seems and is, um, I also believe that we have an extraordinary opportunity that we cannot let go to waste. And um, that is um, going to present itself to us. I, I, I can't tell you what form, but uh, really making sure that the system doesn't get its hands uh, any further, uh, its claws any further into the minds of our young um, is most important. Now, if you um, educate yourself, if you're a parent and you educate yourself on all of this and, and you want to go for it, that's absolutely fine. I'm all about actual choice. And actual choice means that um, you're not being um, vilified for choosing the natural world. Um, I also want to conclude by saying that I'm not a Luddite. You know, I'm not um, against tech at all. I think that technology can be a marvel. But again, to conclude, the technology right now isn't sort of in the wrong hands. It is in the hands of absolute monsters. And you may think that that you may want to shit all over that and, and throw shade at me. But the reality is that um, if you'd like to really look into that, I'm happy to do that. Because you'll find that Unfortunately, I'm right. Um, Allison and I were discussing this the other day. There's not a piece of me that that is happy about that. And it's not about me being right. It's just about this being the reality. Um, I wish, believe me when I tell you, and I really will conclude on this, I wish to death that I was um, never made aware of any of this stuff. <laughs> uh, I, I really... But, but as Allison says, and I keep referencing her because there's only so many principled people that I know um, that, that despite the challenges, despite the fear, despite the threat of losing everything, um, will stand on their principles. And, and she says, you know, she started the journey of all this research, not ever imagining in a million years it would lead her to where it led her. But once she got there, she couldn't just ignore that it was. And that's what it is for me too. So 
um, please share, like, comment, engage, um, and um, remember it's all about being uh, in defense of our of our young. Y'all have a blessed day and tune in on Thursday for the next episode of un uh, Unscripted and Unapologetic. Thanks.